Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons or sermons uh, in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Matthew Milliner. Matthew Milliner is a a professor of art history at Wheaton College. It's not our first uh, Wheaton guest to be on the show, uh, but it is actually his first time to be on, which is bizarre. I can't believe I hadn't had him on before. Matt is a dear friend. We were in seminary together, and then he was in graduate school doing art history next door at the university when I was doing my PhD in uh, systematic theology. So we spent a good decade together in New Jersey and is a dear, dear old friend. And I've been wanting to have him on the show and it just kind of didn't happen. And I'd forget or I'd mention it and we go, oh yeah. And then we wouldn't book it. So we finally got one booked and I'm so glad to have him today to look at our passage, which is Matthew chapter two, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. If you want to check him out, uh, just look up his name, Matthew Milliner, M-I-L-L-I-N-E-R. And uh, you can find he has a a book on uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, in conversation with the experience of First Nations in uh, the Americas, as well as a recent book called Mother of the Lamb, the story of a global icon. His research is in uh, iconography. And he is also an author of boatloads of op-eds in New York Times, First Things, a whole other places. He's a wonderful writer and you can find his stuff, just search his name and you'll discover him all over the web. Uh, so I'm a big fan of of Matt's work and and he's a dear friend and I'm so glad to have him on the show to discuss Matthew 2, 13 through 23. As you're listening to the show today, if you find yourself enjoying it, just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice and you can pass this along to others so that they can find out about it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to find ways there you can support the show. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Matt. So uh, yeah, whenever you're ready, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew two thirteen through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus reigned over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The, the word, word of the Lord. Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. <laughs> Simultaneous. <laughs> that totally. Wow. Thanks for reading. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and the words of this gospel telling this moment in his life, this terrifying moment of fleeing under threat and the loss of so many innocent lives that accompanied the entering into our flesh of your word. And so we ask Lord, that as we study this text, that Matt and I would be illumined by your Spirit, guided to see and to hear what you wish us to see and hear, and that the same would be true for all those listening in, that they too may be drawn nearer to your Word made flesh as they mull over these words and meditate on these words of yours. And so we ask you to do this work now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 So, Matt, what do you notice here? What uh, what stands out to you as you read this familiar story afresh today? I remember as an undergraduate in Wheaton, where I teach now, but I was a student then. And I remember going to a church around the corner from where I now live. So this would have been in the 1990s. And this church is always, for me, marked by what I'm about to share with you. Because I walked in, and what I remember, this tiny little, I think it's a Baptist church or some free church unconnected to not a mainstream congregation. And I'm in this tiny, nondescript, standard suburban church, there was a layperson preaching. And what I remember was the profound sense of responsibility that oozed from him. I would almost go so far as to say fear in the sense, and a good fear, like a holy fear, like I'm not a minister, but but I've been called to preach on this text. And it was this particular text. And he said, and what I'm about to say, I want to be so careful about it, and and nevertheless, I, I feel compelled to make the observation that these children, the innocents who die, these are the first martyrs. And it was just, I, I mean, it, it, it's it, what was so beautiful about it is, sure, anyone can say that, like, oh, they're the first martyrs. But it was so painfully arrived at, that insight. And he was so cautious about suggesting it. And 
I just always was, I was like, wow, that's exactly right. These little baby martyrs. And doubtless there have been people in church history who have under the, I would say, unfortunate theology <laughs> that uh, unbaptized infants all go to hell that would have been disturbingly consistent when it said, well, they're not baptized and Christ hasn't died yet, so they're off, they all go. But no, in fact, in preparing for this, I'm looking at the early Christian comment, ancient Christian commentary on scripture, and lo and behold, here are a bunch of early Christian commentators who say precisely that, that yes, these are the first martyrs, these are the first martyrs, these babies give their lives so that Christ could come into the world. And I think, so that's the first thing that strikes me, John. And the second is that the angel could have done all kinds of things, right? Why did the angel just go strike down Herod, right? It's like, (laughs) that would have been convenient. Yeah. I mean, just like go to the source of the problem. But instead, this non-interventionist God of ours, the same marks that mark the passion, I'm not going to send an army to take out Pilate, (laughs) Also, marks the, there's a subtle intervention, not the direct hit, which certainly happened in Egypt, right? You had the direct hit. But no, God is so gentle and merciful, even with a maniac like Herod. So that's those are some two initial points that really hit me about this. What about you? Yeah, well, just, just riffing off that for a moment. First martyrs, it occurs to me this kind of odd feature of the ancient Christian calendar as it has been preserved for us today. The Holy Innocence Day is, I think, in most churches assigned for the 28th of December, so it'd be like the third day after uh, Christmas, yeah. right? So the fourth day of Christmas. Right. And it's so strange that the – and I don't I – mean, I, I, I imagine this is – a most things in liturgical history are actually – happy coincidences that then theological insight can emerge after the fact. (laughs) Right. I think this was planned, but St. Stephen's day is December 26th. Totally. So yes, another martyr, the first martyr or not in this case, he's actually a little bit after the infants. (laughs) He's not the first. (laughs) Well, and it's, I guess it's important to recognize like different senses of that phrase. Yeah. Right. Cause I mean, why not John the Baptist? As a first martyr, who's like literally martyrus, a witness. Witness, right? Exactly. So there are multiple candidates in some sense, and actually the the breadth and diversity of what it means of what martyrdom means actually is brought out through reflecting on that. Right. The reason we don't say that about John the Baptist, who we reflect on more in Advent, is because he's the last of the prophets. So we kind of locate him on the other side of that narrative. But these unnamed innocent children, yeah, are martyrs in a kind of unique way. Like the, of course, there was that phrase, that phrase, baptism by fire. You mentioned the baptism, right? And that was a, yeah. Cause in the ancient world, it was disturbing when people who literally died for their faith, but hadn't been, you know, properly yeah. certified through baptism as believers, it, that concept emerged pretty early. Oh, but there's another form of baptism. If you actually died for your faith, that counts as baptism. God counts that as a baptism. The baptism of blood. Exactly. Baptism of blood. There's the other phrase, right? So there's two different, I'm not sure the difference. I don't know if those, you study the early church fathers more than I, I'm not sure if those two words have two different meanings or not. Well, let me, a, a real quick contemporary example, and I only mention it because it came up in class um, the other day, 
we were talking about Westminster Abbey, the West facade, where there are all these beautiful statues, contemporary images in an Anglican context, including Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., Archbishop Luwum of Africa. And I mention this because there is a, an African woman, young teenager, Mase Mola is her name, and beautiful image on the front of Westminster Abbey. And she's part of the petty people in Africa who distrusted Anglican missionaries, but she nevertheless was preparing for baptism. And on February 4th, 1928, at 15 years old, before she gets baptism, she's killed because of her interest in Christianity. And that's where this, um, the last time I said, the baptized in her own blood was the way that this was described to me. So another witness, another witness. I mean, isn't it amazing that our faith can do this? It's like, you pick a land. I will show you a witness. And here are these children paving, these little babies, paving the way for that tradition of preaching the gospel with blood. Wow. Yeah, my my other observation is much more pedestrian, as it could be expected. I was noticing the the structure of the passage, opening with, you know, behold, so like a, a sort of verse 13 and 19 in almost perfect parallel, right? You get a kind of subordinate clause, and then behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And then in 19, same structure, Subordinate clause, and then behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, right? And both of those story, those that first that first chunk that starts in 13 and that last chunk that starts in 19, then culminate some, you know, events take place, goes to Israel, then there's another dream. But I think on purpose it doesn't do that structure a third time, which mm-hmm. I thought interesting. I think that's on purpose. It doesn't say Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. It just says, having been warmed in a dream, a little bit more just kind of in passing, parallel to the way the Magi were just warned in a dream. I don't think there's a mention of of the – I'm actually going to check that now. The Magi are – where is it? Verse uh, – till it came to rest when they said – yeah, being warned in a dream. So yeah. it's more passing. And I think that's on purpose because both of those stories – the first section that runs to verse 14 and the last section that runs to verse 23 culminate in these citations, these quotations, right, from the Old Testament, these prophetic fulfillments about Jesus, that he's both called out of Egypt and then he becomes a Nazarene. So I think those are meant to be, I think it's a sandwich kind of structure totally. here. These two events take place kind of on, they're separated in time and they're both these fulfillment citations. And I think all of that, again, very pedestrian observation about the structure that I think is intended to draw our eyes to the events actually that are in between, Yeah, which also culminates in a citation from Jeremiah, whereas the prophet's left unidentified in the other two. It's just a quote, short yeah. quote, whereas this, this citation gets a four lines, you know, a full quotation, you know, double two sets of parallel, two little couplets parallel couplets, big reference to Jeremiah. Yeah. I think it's drawing our attention in, which is interesting, even as you speak of like the, these first martyrs. I mean, this is this is this little kind of crucifixion taking place beforehand, you know, the, yeah. this, this utter suffering drawing our attention there, yet they are witnesses that are drawing our attention then back wow. to the one who survived, 
who's going to be the the focus then, of course, for the rest of the book. But I mean, for this little moment here, actually, the story of Joseph and Mary and Jesus are actually kind of more on the sideline for a little moment here. And this this yeah. other event is brought into the center. And the women's mourning is almost a proleptic of the passion where the women are mourning at the cross. This deep, the, the camera pans in and just shows you these women weeping in, in the same way that Matthew will do at, at Calvary. Right, right. Good, good parallel. Ooh, wow. Yeah. And that's, of course, all the, the ancient Christians, the way they would read it. But uh, forgive the contemporary analogy, but with the people in the pews in mind, I'm thinking when you plug something into GPS, right? The coordinates are already there and you're on the way and then the little, your the the path is blue and then the little gray path comes up. Like, would you like to take this route? <laughs> so it's like the coordinates are already in. Go to Israel. Then the angel comes in. I Actually, we're going to have to redirect right up here to a more specific place, Galilee. And initially you'd think like, wait, is the angel, did he get it wrong? <laughs> because he said Israel, but it's like, no, it, you don't get a full behold because the angel's just a little more direction. We're waiting to see who is in power. Okay. We need you to move in this direction. I mean, you could almost joke and say, I don't think this is how the author intends it. But when it says in verse uh, 22, when he heard that Archelaus reigned over, you could almost take the he to be the angel, right? When the angel's like, oh, <laughs> that's right. The angel's like, <laughs> uh, let's not, let's not go back to Judea. That's not going to go well. There is a traffic buildup on Route 55 and we're going to move. <laughs> I don't actually think that's how Matthew. <laughs> that's th- funny. Usually yeah, that's the funny. un. Yeah. When in doubt in Matthew's birth narratives, Joseph's the kind of primary kind of agent. I, I'm pretty sure that's not what's meant, but. Well, <laughs> well, and this are, okay, so this is just too funny because these are the kind of things that can only happen in a classroom. So a former student friend of ours, now one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Amy Peeler, just wrote a wonderful book called Women in the Gender of God. She just on the show two weeks ago oh, for listeners. We'll if you missed that one, go not. back. So, on so Matthew uh, one, chapter one, oh, fantastic. Four, so yeah. So we're we teach this class on the Virgin Mary together, and we've really been wrestling with these texts all semester. So a funny kind of scenario came up where because I'm not a New Testament scholar, I'm an art historian, so I I have seminary degree, but I kind of I always come to this. Amy lives in this world, and for me, I'm always the outsider observer, and I see for that reason see things a little bit off the wall, but hopefully a little bit fresh. So we're we're t- pointing out how. Let's, the direct, the direct angelic approach was not working with men. So Zechariah, total backfire. Just you know, Zechariah mouthed off, had to get silent. And so we were imagining, like in the break room in heaven, the angels are getting together, and one angel's like, "Yeah, I got to go talk to this Joseph guy." And the angel that went to Zechariah is like, "Let me give you some advice. Do not take the direct approach. I recommend dreams." Because the dreams just get a little gentler. You'll get the message. And it's like, oh, cool. Good thing. They still get to feel like it's their idea. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, there's Joseph is like the dream approach. Do not go into the Holy of Holies and meet Zechariah or it will blow up in your face. And, and maybe <laughs> even the same with uh, just go to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> we'll settle right. where, you know. <laughs> exactly. Just, you know, it's your thought, Joseph. Make make your way. But all that all that said, it really is beautiful to have and I it, it's such a wonderful resource, the ancient Christian commentary, to see the exact place where is that edited by Odin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And um and what's wonderful about um where the martyrdom comment is made by some of these early several of them who say it, um, this particular is um St. Chromatius of Aquileia, which is around about where Italy is today, um, North Italy. 
And these innocents who died then on Christ's behalf became the first martyrs of Christ. David refers to them when he says, From the mouths of nursing babies you have perfected praise because of your enemies, that you might bring ruin to the enemy. Now, again, it's like, where did he get that from? Okay, so that's Psalm 8, verse 2. And I love when these early Christian fathers like, well, if Matthew can do it, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> Here's all the other points that Matthew, you know, it just this not this, this reverent supplementation of I've learned from Matthew how to apply these Old Testament texts. And so I'm going to do the same thing just to expand and amplify. I just admire that boldness. Um, again, it's kind of a weird connection. And then it gets really, uh, this is as weird as we'll get, I, this was out there. <laughs> so in this case, Chromatius says, another guy, so, oh no, forgive me, it's Chromatius, Bishop of Aquileia, and the first one I told you was um, Chrysologus. There's all these lesser known church fathers. But listen to what Chromatius says. <laughs> He's describing this passage and he says, well, the Massacre of the Innocents was clearly prophesied with these words, quote, you will not cook a lamb in the milk of its own mother. And it's like, what? So that's really unexpected. So that's Exodus 23, 19, like in Deuteronomy 14, 21, like what's going on there? And this, I talk about an ingenious interpretation. He's saying Christ couldn't die yet because he's still suckling at Mary's breast. And so you cannot yet kill the lamb. I'm like, whoa. So all these other babies die and you might say, well, why wouldn't Christ just get swept up into it? It's not his time yet. He's the lamb. He's suckling the milk. I'm like, what? Who would have ever thought of that? My hour has not yet come, right? Right. And just, just to see Christ in, you will not cook a lamb in the milk of its own mother. And to see the tender baby Jesus who was preserved from this genocidal act of of a tyrannical warlord egotist. It just, I mean, I, I all that to say, John, I love the ancient Christian commentary, but I have to say my go-to, and it may be the case for you, is Frederick Dale Bruner, right? The, I mean, his commentaries on Matthew, I remember I got to see him once give a, an extraordinary teaching session and it was the the preparatory work for his glorious two-volume commentary on Matthew. He also has a wonderful single-volume fat commentary on John. And it just decades of work have gone into these. And I must say, as much as I enjoy the ancient Christian commentary, what really brings it all home for me, when I pick up his commentary, it just has that reformation emphasis. He's always looking for the gospel. Where's the gospel in this? What do the people in the pews need? And what he, the whole theory that he mines out of this, of course, in touch with modern commentaries as well. So he, he's on the other side of historical criticism, but he's, but he's just so Christ centered and church centered. Hence the Christ book and the second volume is the church book. And he says that the Magi and Herod they function as Matthew's anthropology, and they are us. The Magi are, are humans at their absolute best. They're completely clueless, and they're sort of making their way. And until they encounter Christ, they've got nothing. And so that is the human heart in the exemplary mode. But the same reality applies to all of us, which is the Herodian reality, our egotistical 
greed and self-centered arrogance and violence that's in all of us. And then only the only salvation available to humans that are comprised of the magi at their best, these magicians, and, and also there's a worst element to that of seeking salvation apart from God, and Herod at our worst, the only solution is the Christ child. So I love his framing of that. It's such a reformational framing. You're preaching to a bunch of magis and Herods, and there's a magi and Herod in your own heart too, and they need the Christ child. Isn't that just good? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He astonishes me. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Matthew Milliner, and we are looking at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, text suggested for the first Sunday after Christmas. Before the break, uh, Matt, you were kind of setting up a quote from Bruner. I didn't, I didn't realize you actually had a quote you because you had a great summary, but let's hear it. Let's, let's hear that uh, quote. This is from Dale Bruner. Yeah. His commentary on Matthew. Well, and again, I'll just frame it in regard. I mean, it's really wonderful. Not only, of course, is there the ancient Christian commentaries, the, there's the Reformation commentary on scripture. I don't have that. Um, but it's so nice to get the Reformation blast, that nice, beautiful layer on top of the text as well. And Bruner always takes you back to that. I'll tell you a little point of temptation. He says at one point, no one can have, you know, all of Luther's sermons, but um, it's just so expensive and so much bookshelf space. But he said, I recommend from the 55 volume Luther sermons, volume 21, Sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and volumes 26 to 27, Lectures on Galatians, which you can pick up relatively inexpensively. And what he means by that is, where's the gospel in it? Where's the gospel in it? And so here's how he, um, so the first thing that he does, thanks to the far side of historical criticism, he says, we have here a replication of the journey of Israel, right? Is that the, the patriarchs go down, they start in the Holy Land, they go down into Egypt, and then they come back. And this is precisely what the new Israel in Christ is up to. So he makes much of that connection. And then, of course, he fully owns the fact that Matthew is giving Hosea, for example, a meaning never imagined by Hosea, but that the evangelist Matthew can find, and that that makes it authoritative. And that's what I love, the boldness of the ancient Christian commentators. Like, okay, I can do it too, right? I can see Christ in an Old Testament text, even if Matthew doesn't mention it. But of course, it's most authoritative for Matthew. And I, I want to share just another, before I give you the Bruner quote, another imaginative uh, scenario that we sort of conjured in this Matthew class. I'm sorry, the class that was in, investigating Matthew that was focusing on, on the, uh, the birth narratives. And I thought to myself, just trying to put myself in the situation of Matthew. And I imagined as a non-specialist, which means my imagination can run free here. It's not restrained by all the historical knowledge of the first century. But just imagine a tax collector who's not as well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures as the Pharisees, but he walks into a church after his conversion, after this experience, maybe even after the resurrection, and he hears some very smart rabbi just ridiculing 
the church, the nascent emergent church, because of with all of these proof texts, like, well, come on, this guy came from Nazareth. Where's that? He, he's from Galilee. There's no connection here. It had to have been from Bethlehem, throwing all these geographies together. And I want to, for a moment, just to imagine Matthew getting a little bit heated, right? Frustrated, angry, and saying, I'm pretty educated and I could respond. And just furiously taking notes, maybe not even publicly challenging this setting, and then writing down his gospel. Let me show you, buddy, how this all aligns with the Old Testament. I just, I, I love that scenario. So Bruner does a good job. And again, just I'm just a master teacher. When he spoke publicly at this extended weekend, I was with him. It was just like the scriptures were just opening in front of you. It was just nectar from the Lord that, that, that was being poured out from the Bible. And so here's how he does it. So I'm, I summarize it, but I want to give it uh, to the listeners in, in Bruner's words. Here's how he brings the gospel in this passage. Jesus makes the chapter's anthropology complete. The Magi and Herod represent humanity's need, the child humanity's provision. There are two themes in the New Testament, and they combine to make one gospel, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and humanity's deep need for that grace, sin and grace, need and salvation, the human problem and the divine solution. When either of these is insufficiently emphasized, respect for the other diminishes. One reason for the Reformation's stress on the deep depravity and fearful lostness of persons apart from Christ, I think here of my friend David Zoll's book, Low Anthropology, right? The lostness of humanity. Beyond the fact that it is the pervasive witness of Scripture was the desire to magnify the wonder of God's grace in Christ. And then he quotes (laughs) the Apology for the Augsburg Confession. We cannot know his blessings unless we recognize our evil. We need to appreciate the Magi and Herod in us if we are to appreciate the Christ for us. Now, that's Bruder, right? Unfootnoted, bunch of italics, he's preaching. And, and I think as a, as a Protestant, I think of Rembrandt, right? The dark, dark palette. And that's what brings the light to bear. Rembrandt is the painter of justification by faith. He shows you his own and humanity's darkness, which is what brings the light of Christ in chiaroscuro contrast to our human sin. And what a, what a tragedy any sermon on this text would be if it failed to make that connection um, to the Magi and Herod in us. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's so helpful because this is a, I mean, when I was putting together the, the schedule for the show for Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, I was kind of like, oh man, I don't know if I want to talk about this text. Who am I going to get to... <laughs> do this one. <laughs> Lo and behold, no surprise at all, but delight that you're helping me hear the gospel here because it is a dark it is dark event, yeah. you know? But to see that that in this darkness the light is kind of shining through and so that picture of Matthew both remembering and narrating and bringing voice to the voiceless whose lives were lost at this moment. Yeah. Simultaneously making his case to say this was all woven in 
because the obvious like resonance of this text, but you can't just quote one verse, you know, it would be the Moses story, right? That's the kind of connection he's making totally. here that the whole history of Israel is getting sort of recapitulated here yeah. in the life of Jesus. Another rescue of, of a male infant. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course the dreamer that was Joseph who first brought the people down to Egypt and that out of Egypt, I called my son. I mean, you know, like it's not a, you know, you go look up Hosea 11. It's not, it's not really a messianic passage in any sort of in, it's the about narrow, Israel. in a narrow sense. Yeah. That son is just talking about Israel. So at one glance, it could look like Matthew's just picking a random proof text. And on some level, he is. But on another level, but it's both and. It's right, both and. It actually is that narrative totally. of Hosea, which is saying, I, I brought you out of Egypt, but you strayed and I'm bringing you home again, is exactly what is happening here in the coming of Christ. He is the one who's coming out of Egypt so that he can restore the people, right? So it's still that, go- that same gospel in Hosea 11 and in Matthew 2. And Israel's chief enemies are who? Egypt and Babylon, right? And if we include Assyria and Babylon, and both of them, this is what the early fathers say, are connected in this passage. Obviously Egypt, but then Babylon in the form of the Magi. Ah, Isn't that just good, right? It's just, is that the reconciling love of God is emphasizing that everyone's going to be included and I'm even going to work around this homicidal maniac and work my purposes so that my saving love can conquer and triumph, but not in the way that Herod wants to conquer. And, and I got to say, John, is that, and this is a great art historical passage too, because so often this is depicted in the history of art, the flight into Egypt as the iconography. So if you even just Google that, you'll get a, a glory. Always there's a good Wikipedia article on classic iconographical themes that is worth looking up. And you'll see I love the word Bruner uses this. They're hunted. I have never been hunted before, but they are fugitives and hunted is a stronger way of putting it. And so they're, they're fleeing. And as they go into Egypt, you see this on the exterior of Notre Dame and Paris. You see it in countless manuscripts. As they enter idolatrous Egypt, the idols fall. And I cannot help but think to, again, bring it home to our, our digital device-saturated world. I cannot help think of this would be the equivalent of Instagram, Facebook, and uh, and TikTok toppily in the encounter with the risen Christ, right? Our idolatrous uh, archons that rule our own age, right? That, um, again, it's like, oh, that would never happen. They're too powerful. It's like, no, the Christ child overcomes those potentially idolatrous instruments in our own Silicon Valley equivalent of Egypt, right? I just, wow, that, that, I, that thing of put your phone down, right? I, I just fi- let the Christ child enter my idolatrous heart. And just for at least 20 minutes, can I just stop what these companies want from me, which is a few more glued eyeballs to boost advertising revenue. I mean, that'll preach, right? And so just what Egypt does, and it just, so again, you don't get it from the text, but you get it from the art history. These little images of the, of, of a toppled idol, put that on the cover of your bulletin, right? Jesus is coming. Let's let the idols fall. 
the idols falling over, just like when the Ark of the Covenant was in the Temple of Dagon, yeah, right? just exactly. kind of knocking that's over. That's what it's idols. a reference to, precisely. Yeah, well, that that's great. That will preach. I think that's a perfect place to transition for our third segment. Does that sound good? So let's take a quick break and come back perfect. and explore some sermon starters. And as Matt said, you might be on your phone. You probably are listening to this. So if you just need to go take a 20-minute break and be present <laughs> for a little go, while, yeah, you have our permission. <laughs> Phones can be used well. They can be used well. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Matthew Milliner, and we are looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So here, let me just read it again so it's fresh in our ears, and then we'll explore some sermon starters. So now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Those who hunted the child's life are now dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord Thanks be to God. All right. So let's explore some sermon starters. Where might you go with this? I mean, there's already so much ideas that we've talked about, but what would really be your focus and approach uh, if you were preaching on this or what recommendations might you have to those who might be preaching or teaching on this text? Well, I'm going to do it in a roundabout way. I have an interesting suggestion, but I want to start by saying when it comes to the Magi, just for imagine, think if they got word. Um, hey, uh, by the way, remember when you shared that with that uh, ruler in that land you visited? Uh, he murdered hundreds and hundreds of children. And just imagine the dread, right? The, oh, the, yeah, the guilt. They, they accidentally yeah. they didn't they didn't know better, and they shared information. 
Yeah, because it narrates that he specifically asked them when did the star oh, appear. Exactly. Yeah. And he's pumping them for info. And, and it's not their fault, but it wouldn't have happened without them. And I just, I think of, um, I don't know if there are people in your congregation that, that can connect it to that level of guilt, but God redeemed it anyway. And so maybe there's that heart that's longing for that. And um, I always love the connection. And if you want to be inspired, I really, if you haven't done it lately, um, just compare and contrast my two favorite Magi poems. The one is The Wise by William Everson, a beat poet uh, who who converted. I prefer it because it has an upbeat conclusion, right? And they flung themselves down in the dung and dirt of that place and kissed that ground. And the tears ran on their faces where the rain had, right? It's just, and I think that William Everson is replying to T.S. Eliot's more downer of a poem, Journey of the Magi, uh, which concludes <laughs> with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. And and I mention that because normally I incline toward Everson, but when I think if they had that message, that that um, I kind of this kind of leans Eliot, right? It's Eliotic in the sense of the the still um, the weight of these lifetime magicians, right? Who still have you know got a fleeting glimpse of the answer, but Calvary and the resurrection. Maybe they never got that message until after their death. So all that to say, um, there's that poignant part. But that's not really what I was thinking of, John. When it comes to a sermon starter, I just want to mention there's so much unhelpful. Uh, talk and when there's a lot of talk about a subject much of it of course will be unhelpful about gender in our culture right now and what really stunned me about this passage is that both men or in this case boys where they're in there's a crisis about boys in our culture right and of course women are singled out for their unique suffering in this passage and so if you have a church where you're constantly talking about women's issues or constantly talking about men's issues, this passage is summoning you to address the pain of both genders. Because, of course, it's only the boys who die, and it is the women in particular. So female babies are off the hook, right? Female children. And, um, and, and then it is these women who are singled out for their suffering. And just think of the the difficulty that both men and women face. And let's stop privileging um, the suffering of one particular gender and really emphasize um, the fact that this suffering is universal, that there's unique uh, a unique cross that men bear, a unique cross that women bear. And we're sort of summoned to that attention, um, granted to, to both. I'm in this passage. So so that's one of the things that I was thinking about, maybe meeting people in that regard and, and thinking of, of the unique suffering. But that's just an initial thought. But, but what thoughts might you have about sermon starters on this? Well, I, I love that. I think you could do, do a whole lot with that, just exploring, you know, just listening to the cries, right? right. The cries of the children, the cries of their mothers. Yeah, I was I, – this is totally different. I was struck by, again, following through on the parallelism from between 13 and 19, but something I didn't notice until a comment you made earlier 
about the the way the GPS gets a little more precise yeah. partway through the second part. Now, how, what I'm about to pitch right now, I'm going to need your help how to weave this in and around the the tragedy in the middle of the story. So mm. I would, and sometimes I'll have an idea, but then I'll be like, you know how you like there's the big distracting thing in the middle of the story that you don't want to just ignore because you have some clever other things. So I want to acknowledge that I don't have this all ironed out, but I was struck by in the dream, the angel of the Lord says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And then says, why, you know, for, for Herod, you know, searching the child to destroy him. And then in 20, it's rise, same verb, take the child and his mother, same verb, same noun mm. and go. So not flee this time, go to the land of Israel. So same parallel. And then you don't get a fourth verb, which the first time was remain there until I tell you. Mm -hmm. Just goes for those who sought the child's life or death. So another reference to Herod, the reasoning. So you get four verbs first and then three. And both times it's kind of the same. Rise, take, flee, Mm -hmm. remain. But then the second time, again, it actually helps with this little problem. I I could see myself even introduce – because sometimes when I'm working on a sermon, usually I leave my exegesis at the table. I leave it on my desk, right, you know, right. and, and just kind of present the results in a way that's good news. Sometimes I draw people into my exegetical pondering or question and let that a be the peak, kind of problem. Peek behind the curtain. <laughs> because sometimes it draws you in to kind of say, yeah. boy, it's kind of weird that the angel wasn't more precise. See, you helped me. So I noticed yeah. the parallelism, but I didn't understand the significance of it until you pointed out. Isn't this a little weird that the angel mm-hmm. – is not more precise in this second moment. And yet, and yet, it's almost implied that there's something more precise to come by the missing of that of that fourth verb. Right? The first time is very clear. Rise, take, flee, remain. It's totally being influenced by I'm thinking of like like preaching on like take, bless, break, give, right? <laughs> in the Eucharist, totally, right? the verbs, totally. right? Rise, take, flee, remain. And then I think the difficulty is Joseph then has no more information. Mm. Remain. Doesn't say how long he's going to remain. As far as they know, they are relocating to Egypt for the rest of their life. Wow. And so like, I wonder if speaking to those in in our community who have risen and taken their families and fled whether that's fleeing a job you hate or fleeing a family that is toxic um, or l- quite literally fleeing from one country to another and living right. now as an immigrant in another space. And all you know is that your invitation right now is to remain, to abide. This is that famous verb in, in John's gospel, right? Abide, right? That you're here to remain. And that's all you have right now. That's all the information you have right now is that this is where you're supposed to be right now. And you don't know how long, and you're still learning what it looks like to be faithful here in this land of idols, right? Back to your idol thing. Wow. I feel like that's the focus that I would want to have. And then at some point, then be able to come back to that second part where, okay, but some of you are being called to something else. You're on your way back. And yet it's not the same when you go back, right? You go back and you're like, uh, well, where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to settle down? You know? So I don't even know how much I would get to that second half, but I really like playing with those four verbs in the first part. What does it mean to remain? 
And then here's the great hope, though, hidden in that. This is the little gospel hope in that. Rise, take, flee, and remain there until I tell you. So the angel has already planted the seed. I'm going to come back in a dream again, behold, and tell you when it's time to go. So there is that hope that, okay, but it's not clear that you're, you're going to be told to come back. You might have to go further south to Sudan or to Ethiopia. It doesn't say, mm-hmm. right? I'm surely there's hope. I'll get to come home. I'm going to get to come home, right? Wow. How long that's going to be. And it's not guaranteed. And even the coming home is not exactly a coming home because there's clearly a kind of strange way back when it comes back. I don't know if there's enough there for a sermon, but it's a sermon starter, right? And, and how do we, I'd need your help. How would we weave in the, the suffering in the middle section there? But what is the homiletical jackpot, right? I think the homiletical jackpot is, and, and when I say jackpot, I mean like this is what, what a preacher heard this. She or he would be like, Oh, that's, I can't believe God used me like that. And I've heard about it. You hear about it in churches sometimes. Like uh, we were trying to discern what the Lord wanted us to do. And then this sermon that just clearly it was time for us to, to move. And it's like, you can't plan any of that, right? It has to be the Holy Spirit. And what I love about, and of course, I I don't want to, I'm not trying to say we want some kind of miraculous intervention is, is really what we should be going for. We should be going for preaching the gospel, but I cannot help to point out as a result of what you said that to include those verbs, those those imperatives in your sermon gives the Holy Spirit an opportunity to say to perhaps some people, maybe they need to be told, remain. Maybe they need to be told, rise and flee. The early Christian commentators were constantly pointing out, sometimes clearly you should flee. That's how the church expands. And clearly Jesus his family life is saying, it's okay to run sometimes. You don't always have to take a stand, right? Or rise. It's time for you to take a stand, right? So it really, I, what I love about this is that reaching this full text and letting those words resound give, maybe gives the Holy Spirit an opportunity to summon a part of the heart that needs to hear that. And in addition, and you know, I'm I'm going to point this out. It's important, is that we should not have had a necessity in Christianity for depth psychology. It should not have needed to have arisen. The Christian Church should have been tending to the depths, so that it was a very normal thing for Christians to attend to their dreams and their unconscious. But unfortunately, that did not happen, and so this rebel movement needed to arise that is therefore, unfortunately, at odds with Christianity, but it needs not be. And one of the things that the depth psychologists tell us is attend to your dreams. And what the great Christian psychologists like John Sanford and and Morton Kelsey, all these wonderful Christians who took from the depth psychology tradition, they all wrote books about dreams. And they said, why aren't we paying attention to our dreams enough? It happened to Joseph. And so if you want to know what the Lord is up to in your life, you might suggest Joseph is a model of someone relatively attuned to his unconscious, right? And I know it's an angel, it's not just his unconscious, but there's a clear channel there. Are you listening? That's the to- instrument. That's the instrument yes. that the angel's using. Yeah. yeah. 
And are yeah. you listening to what God is is saying to you, or maybe saying to you? It would be a big mistake to say it's always God. It's sometimes just the 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 innards, right? Um, but but I find that attending to my dreams is something that I was not taught how to do. And I learned it from some of these Christian depth psychologists who got it from Joseph. I think it's Kelsey's book called Dreams, colon, God's Forgotten Language. Um, that might be Sanford. I can't remember, but both, they both basically say the same thing. Why aren't we doing this? Because I want to know. I feel like I'm in a remain point. But you and I, going back in our lives, we've had the flea days. We've had the the rise, time to go to grad school, time to take on this new unexpected challenge of of teaching, of ministry. And that's the job. I want, I want to go to church where someone is not just doing some exegetical machinery, right? And showing, you know, I want to see, do you care about what the Holy Spirit's up to in my life? And I will be honest with you. There's usually a time in the sermon where I'm like, okay, it's just going to be an, an intellectual game. Or, oh, this person really cares about what's going on down here. And that's what I want to hear. And for some reason, John, when you said those words, that's the kind of depth sermon I would want to hear in this. So that I walk away saying, I've heard the gospel. I've seen how Jesus has capitulated Israel, but this passage is about the Magi in me, the Herod in me. So I need the gospel, but it's also might be a way God is directing my life. Where am I in this in this journey that that God has brought me on? There is a Christ in me, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory, that might be threatened, that needs to move on, right? I don't know, or that that might be being summoned to stay planted where I am, so that I can be faithful over the long haul, as Joseph was. So there's a lot there. I love those words: rise, flee. Mm. Who knows? You don't get to pick that as a preacher. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But right. you can. But it, by by preaching it all, you you can even invite and say, "What is God calling you to right now?" Spare us sermons that don't conclude with some kind of personal appeal. It's not a sermon. Take yeah. it from me. I'm a teacher. If I do that, it's a little out of bounds. But if you don't do that as a preacher, it's a little out of bounds. You get to do that. You're not teaching. You're preaching. Speak to them. What is God calling you to do, right? Oh, it's fun. Well, amen to that. Yeah, well, I mean, Matt, I think in the last hour, we've probably pitched about 10 different sermon starters. So I think we've we've hopefully given our listeners a feast. So thanks so much for the time that you've given. It's been My great delight. to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'd love, I'd love to come back. Let's do it for sure. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for your production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our supporters of the show, but especially those who support us financially. If you'd like to become one of our supporters, go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways that you can become a patron saint of the show. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>